Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two-ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about Metalab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but Metalab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel-perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co. That is M-E-T-A-L-A-B dot C-O, metalab dot C-O. And when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. That's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one only takes two to three seconds and we really really appreciate it so thank you today's episode is another one of our episodes that was recorded right before the coronavirus pandemic and disruption to all of our daily lives really took hold it was recorded here in san francisco maybe two days before we all started to collectively um, have our lives changed by it so we don't reference coronavirus in the in the conversation itself. And I wanted to wait a few weeks before releasing this for us, well, globally, to get our feet beneath us a little bit. And I recorded a coronavirus-specific episode that I released recently before starting to release these much more typical conversations of Below the Line. Today's episode is with Taryn Toomey, who's one of my favorite founders in the world. I am an investor in her company called The Class, but I'm an investor because she is so interesting and not having her on the podcast because she just happens to be a portfolio founder. She is, like I said, the founder of The Class, which is, it is becoming somewhat of a cult craze starting in New York City 
and now growing internationally. And now with the ability to actually participate in the class digitally, after seven years of, of you needing to be there in person for it, now anyone around the globe can actually discover what the class is all about. I won't go into detail of what the class is in this intro. You'll have to take my word for it. It is much more than what meets the eye with the name the class. But we talk about that. We also talk about grieving well, a phrase I had never really heard of before or considered. But once hearing Taryn put it so bluntly of grieving well, it became a fascinating conversation point of ours. We talk about the principles behind the class, where she was in life when she started it, and a whole lot more. I'm really excited for you all to listen to this episode with Taryn Toomey. This is Below the Line. We're live. Taryn? We're live. Good morning. Good morning. What is, well, you're in New York, so it is actually a few hours later, early afternoon for you. But um, what have you been up to today? Today, huh? Well, I taught this morning after a little bit of a restless sleep last night and started moving in class and felt really heavy and exhausted in my body. And by the end, I felt incredible and amazing because I was able to be of service to all the people in the room, which ends up becoming cyclical for me. And then I went home, kissed my kids. They went to school. I did a little filming for some digital content to bring this work out to all of the people in the world that would like to experience it. And now I'm here. Do you know what caused the restlessness or is that just an every once in a while occurrence? I don't haven't fully identified it, but I know starting on Saturday afternoon, I just wasn't taking good care of myself. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't, I just wasn't doing all my good self-care stuff and my body really responds. And it started then Sunday didn't feel well. And then Monday, I just kind of crushed it in the day. Didn't take much rest time. And it shows up in the opposite way for me when I'm exhausted, I get restless. So Mm -hmm. it just kind of smacked me in the face last night. Yeah, I've been restless or, or at least sluggish the last two days from, and I realize this uh, more and more each year from the time zone changes. Mm. It just, it messes with me for six or seven days and not in a huge way, but it's just, yeah, I feel a little bit off and it's just waking up an hour early, especially as you spring forward, waking up an hour early really messes with me. You're right. Way more than I, That's 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 it. <laughs> it might I well for me it, it certainly it always has that effect. I'm actually that's part of uh, the drink that I've got right now. And for listeners, they know we're big on the ritual here of having a crazy drink each episode. I've got a Rebel Gold Label. Don't even know what's in this thing, but if it has a gold label, it seems like it's going to be pretty intense. Ultimate Super Herb Elixir, and I saw Lion's Mane on there, so I was like, okay. I can dig that. That'll that'll <laughs> add some. Has a little caffeine and a little lion's mane mushroom, so that'll be good. What are you drinking right your, now? I love your deep dive into. Uh, I don't know what's on it, but it's a gold label. I'm drinking right. a glass of water with no ice. That is smart. That is smart. I know you're big on rituals too. What is your? And I want to get into the, you know, zooming out and, and talking about the class and your entrepreneurial path, creator path beyond just the class, but just dialing into 
rituals. What are some of your your rituals during the day or week or morning that are non-negotiables for you? Yeah, I mean that that question comes through a lot. It's uh, you know, this standard kind of woman that works in wellness. I used to hear myself answer these questions and say, that sounds so not interesting, but it really is the basics. You know, I take a shower before bed every night, no matter if I took one during the day or not, just to wash the day off. I meditate every day. I move my body every day. Even on rest days, I'll do breath work or something to just activate some of the energy in me that feels like it's a little bit dormant or unsettled. Spend time with my kids, you know, even if it's just a few minutes and just get down on my knees and chat with them and see what's going on in their life. That feels like a really good grounding board for me. And uh, those are kind of my non-negotiables. What's something that you do now that you didn't have incorporated out of all of those things or anything else that that you'd point to now and you're like, oh my, that was insanely game-changing? I was joking in the office the other day. I called it active aloneness. It just came out of my mouth. I don't, it's not really like a thing, but I've been actively trying to spend some time alone, uh, which is much different than being lonely. I really recently went through a big transition in my life where I have that window of time to be alone. And instead of being fearful around it, I just dive into it. And I feel like, wow, I'm actually not alone. I'm I'm with myself. So let's get to know myself 41 years later. When I, what I used to do was just dive headfirst into community and music and all the things that have always regulated me. So actively being alone is definitely a new one. What is that? What does that look like? Like specifically? Moving slowly, you know, not being on my phone and like just that frenetic energy of like phone while you're eating, while you're like trying to figure out what to do or like go online and like do something. It's like, I'm going to sit and I'm going to either write and I'm going to cook myself a meal and I'm going to think about what I'm cooking and I'm going to think about my thoughts when I'm cooking it. And then I'm going to eat with a fork and not my fingertips and just really simple like brass tacks get down to like breathing and, and and moving slowly. And that's been real good medicine for me lately. It, that's really, that's new for me. You know, it's, it's, it's new. So yeah. And not like calling people and not texting people and not looking at social media and just really taking a peek inside, uh, you know, taking a look at the inside job that's going on in there. Things that are asking me to take a peek at them and doing it. I remember reading in, in one of your interviews that, you, I, the thing that's going through my mind is how do you create space for that? It seems so easy, especially with two little ones for it. Just, you try to create a boundary and it collapses the moment that you feel, okay, that's, I need to be second and others are first. But I remember reading one of your interviews, you talked about creating a boundary of meditation in the morning, even if it was for, I think you said, even for three minutes and and had to walk me through how you created that boundary with your children and and does that apply today with with that active alone time I like that I like that phrase active yeah. alone time Thank you thank you it's it's kind of funny it just popped out So I started meditating with them when they were really little I think that any of these practices that you do if it becomes normal because you do it daily and it's a ritual it's not viewed as something that mama's doing it's just mama it's just life um, right Yeah. And when they were little and I would get them ready for school, I always had wake them up, get them dressed, get them fed, put the food down, hang out with them for a minute, and then say, I'm going to go into my bedroom and meditate. And they always knew like if the house is burning down or something was going on, they can come and interrupt. 
And of course they would push into the boundaries at first and come in and like, you could feel them walking around you or breathing or like acting silly, but I would just sit and stay steady. And they knew if they needed me, I was there. And then after a while it became less of a joke for them. And then I was just in my bedroom and meditating. And it just depends on how much time I would have. Sometimes it'd be three minutes, sometimes it'd be 20, look at the clock, you know, do the math and decide how long you could sit there, set an alarm. And then when I was done, I would come out and we would finish the morning and I would bring them to school. So it's just implementing it as if it's your normal because it is not make a big thing about it. We, we have a two-year-old. How, how old were your children when you felt like, okay, we can give those boundaries? And what did you do when they were one and, and two years old? I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just asking you know, for personal curiosity, right? You have to see the window. You know, they're obviously, they're, they're human beings and they have a certain level of intelligence that they can understand. And I think you have to see the window of understanding how you can give them an instruction and allow them to push the boundaries and you hold your space. So it's interesting. I've never really thought it's been going on for a couple of years. So I would say, you know, my youngest was probably in first grade. No, probably about three or four years ago. But my youngest, I've been bringing on retreats with me since she was 10 months old. So she's been much more enmeshed in the community than my older one, who was, you know, two and a half, still in the community. But so they see these practices and the ways that we move and what we do as being normal. It's mm-hmm. not something that's like, what in the world is going on? I just, you, you just do it. You know, you don't, it's like you brush your teeth, you meditate. Mom's in the other room. She's making dinner. She's, meditating, you know, or breathing or stretching. And oftentimes my little one will join me and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, but yeah, you just start doing it. You just, that's it. You just start. Yeah. I I think about that, that stuff quite a bit on rituals and creating. Sometimes it needs to be shared, especially if it is things like active alone time or just thinking time in, in a company, being able to just block off your calendar and say, Hey, I'm blocking off three hours on these days just for thinking and not feeling like, okay, this is, it almost feels like you need to collaborate around these, these rituals and you want it to be obviously shared. It's great for your children. It's great for colleagues to start to share in, in whatever boundaries you're setting up, because if they're useful for you as, as a founder, then they can, they obviously can be really useful for team members. Do you have things that come to mind where you learned on the job as mother and and it's informed how you lead as as a founder? 100%. I mean, the, the, the class, the work we do in the class, the way we teach teachers how to lead the class and how to hold space in the room is, it's like a mirror to how to mother. In my opinion, the understanding of knowing when to just listen and when to not move into a space of just dialoguing or giving feedback and the idea of feeling into the space of what somebody needs, and that changes day to day, hour to hour. And we, what we do in training is exactly what I do with my kids. I'll ask them specifically, do you need me to just listen right now? Or do you want feedback? And sometimes people feel shocked when you say that. They're like, oh, I, I don't even know. And then you get them to tune into what they need, and then they can verbalize it. And then you can hold the space for whatever it is they need. And that idea of, are you open to feedback? I I find that to be a really important question, especially with kids. And I don't use feedback. I say, do you want me to give you some words or my opinion? You know, I use feedback sometimes, but that's a little bit more along teachers or um, some of the people that work with me in my company. Because if the person's not open to hearing something, they're just going to shut you out and it's not going to resonate. And then everybody's just wasting their own breath. So Mm -hmm. sometimes somebody just wants you to listen. 
And that's really what we, you know, I do as a mother and I do as a founder and I do with myself. And I love that what you just said about the three hours of, of time to be creative, because I think that's what happens. We're, we're, we're always thinking we have to think about the next thing or the next move. And there's not like a container or any sort of scaffolding around for you to get to the essence of what your work of your soul is or your Dharma or the thing that allows you to feel fulfilled. So for me, I go to the class and I go to other teachers' classes and that's my three hour or whatever, I call it an hour. But, and that's what's so beautiful and so meta about the work is that the thing that was birthed through me that accidentally happened to heal myself and then I expressed and now I get to go to, to create, to give myself time to, you know, and then that's when I have my best ideas is when I'm moving and somebody's, you know, holding the room together and these, this movement pattern that I love and, you know, the design that was created of it. But, you know, it's, it's hard as a mom, because like you said, sometimes you just get hit out of left field. Your kid is sick. Like just last night, I was feeling exhausted. I knew I needed to get to bed early. I get home. Um, my children's nanny, Yaya, who I love with all my heart, had a massive migraine and she needed to lay down. So I went and I put her in my daughter's bed and swaddled her up and gave her some Tylenol and some you know, a dark room and then took my other two kids and had them in my bed. So that way she could sleep. And then I was, you know, you just do it. And that's when your practice comes in. Just, you know, when you're tested, that is the the sign to use awareness that, whoa, this is not going how I want it to step outside the room for a second, take a couple deep breaths, wiggle your toes and then step back in, you know? So that's the practice. Right. Yeah. Alan Watts has a, one of my favorite philosophers has a quote of, are you a fan? A man knew what was up. He did. He's, he was guy who's so ahead of his time. And, and it's, um, yeah, I think he'll, he'll largely be seen as one of the most influential philosophers of the the 20th century. Sometimes it takes a couple decades uh, (laughs) later for, for us to, to see those things. But yeah, he has a quote of, if you can't meditate in a boiler room, you can't meditate. And I think about that on a weekly basis, not necessarily about meditation, but it's just, can you do the work? If you can't do the work in chaos, then how talented are you at being able to do the work? And it's always just a litmus test of, of how much how much work you, you need to still do on yourself when things do come out of left field. Uh, when Out of curiosity, when were you introduced to Alan Watts or when did you come across his stuff? Probably about two years ago, somebody sent me one of his songs called It Starts Now. Do you mm-hmm. know how he does this beautiful like teachings through music? Have you seen, heard that? Oh yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's people splicing them together. It's not really him. It's, yeah, it's other people editing it. And that was how I was introduced. Like give me a little lyrical, musical kind of thing to move with. I bring him into class all the time and I really? just get quiet, let him do his thing. And then we move into a round of whatever else we're doing after and I'm always like, thank you. Like, you know, I appreciate you holding the room for me. What right. he said. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That is, it's so, friends and family find it so annoying when I bring him up, but it's, he's like the most eloquent, erudite individual I've ever come across. So it's like, well, I can't improve upon this. So let me just use something he said. And you mentioned music. Do you mind giving listeners an overview of the class? And I know music is such a core component of it. And I think it it might seem ho-hum, a lot of workout, physical uh, type of mediums utilize music, but it's, it's far more important for, for you and, and the class than I think for, for most. 
but high level, do you mind giving listeners an overview of the class and, and how it started seven, seven years ago? Yeah. Yep. Well, eight years ago in, in my basement of my building, okay. taught it for two years with no name, gave it a name the class six years ago because I couldn't think of what to call it because we're doing so many things in there. And it's a movement-based practice that's music-driven. We use, um, we repeat one movement per song for the entire song. And we notice what the mind is doing and how many times it changes during that repetitive movement over and over. The physical feeling in the body changes. It gets intense. What does your mind do? Right? Understanding the mind is an organ. It has a function. It creates thought. It's just doing its job. Let's take a peek. And then we move through a variety of different movements from contraction to expansion, flushing, think, uh, you know, skater side to side, jumping jacks. Then we're down and we're doing a long song of abdominals. Um, and the idea of the class, the core essence of it is that nobody has the answer, right? You're not going to go to class and somebody's going to say, just be loved, just do this, or like play a loud song and start preaching things at you that they've heard or like picked up along Instagram. It's that you live in your body. It holds your experiences. And we move in a way where the teacher is holding the room for you to awaken your own response, take a peek at what it is, track how long you've been having that response, get to the root of where it began, and then decide if you want to take action and continue to repeat it or not. So that looks like you start with a long song of squats. You're squatting, you're squatting, you're squatting. You're like, we, you know. Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing. This is great. And then all of a sudden the like legs start to burn and you're like, oh, wait a second. What is this woman doing? I don't want to do this. What is that person doing? And like, uh, right. And then we invite students to close their eyes and just acknowledge the thought about the feeling. It's just a feeling. And then from there, take action, start the movement or stop the movement or not. Understanding that you are conditioning your response to the feeling. When you get frustrated, we invite people to make sounds. So think, Three minutes into the squat, all of a sudden the arms start going overhead and we start going, huh, huh, huh. And then you start to realize, wait a second, if I'm able to express some of this feeling, I can stay with myself longer. And then after a period of time in the design of the class through the expression of sound and movement and different types of song from very introspective to expansive to Rage Against the Machine to something with no lyrics and all instrumental and very calm. And then we place our hands on our body and we close our eyes and we notice that there is a spirit and a soul that is in our physical body, which chose this physical body. And it is feeling and hearing all of these things that are being created. And then we acknowledge that. And then after a series of doing that kind of very stilling, quieting, we do a heart opening series where we connect to the essence of heart and soul, how many people you've touched and impacted in your life and then begin to have an experience of you allowing yourself to feel the essence of that, of who you are. We close with um, some breath work and meditation and then people leave. And oftentimes they'll say, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's not the teacher that should be thanked. It's the student that's self-actualizing their own ability. It's them empowering themselves. And it's just the design of the class that's holding the container for them to do that. So that's a long-winded answer. No, it's, I, I think it still only um, scratches the surface. My wife is, has done it a handful of times here in San Francisco, and and she just comes back, and it, it, there's a, a glow, but it's also, and it's not here regularly. She does it at, at the assembly. Um, and I think the instructor is Natalie. Is that 
maybe Natalie sound right? Carly and Aaron, they all come down, go down there and teach. Yep. Right. So uh, whenever she gets a chance, she she goes and loves it. She wants me to tell you that she wants to do it weekly and regularly. Uh, so uh, she wants that. Well, to... she can do that. All she's got to do is tune into our. Oh, show. that's oh, that's right. Do you, uh, that's a new, a whole new uh, expansion is the digital side of things. Um, yep. And. Well, so that I don't forget, what, how do people get in touch with the, the digital side of the class if they can't make it physically? Yeah, you just go to theclass.com and there's a digital studio link on that and uh, it leads you right to it. And we only live stream classes right now. And the whole intention behind that is that we're doing it collectively. So people give a lot of pushback. They're like, we need on demand. We need this. We need that. And we're like, we hear you. There's something that goes on when you know you're doing it with hundreds of other people at the same time, the kind of Shakti and the collective energy. And, you know, we'll, we'll add more times and all of that. But for now, like it holds you accountable. You show up. If the time doesn't work, you take a peek at what does and you do it. And then there's an essence, you know, there's an experience that feels very collective about it. So that's why, why we do it that way. But, that's very cool. A kind of uh, a global live stream. And, um, so yes, I will tell her about that, but it still is her experience is just, it's, there's a glow about it and she's just, you know, smiling and she just feels extremely exhausted, spent, and at the exact same time fulfilled. And it's a really cool balance where she's just soaking in sweat as she runs back home from, from the assembly and she is, yeah, spent and topped up at the at the same time and it's different than than her other workout classes and it's different than other uh, workout classes that that I will do take us back 8 years ago when you started to create this before it had a name what was missing in and I want to talk about where you were individually in your life and then also what was missing in the different you had taught yoga you had done a number of I, I imagine endless number of other types of classes. What did you feel like was missing for you to start teaching your own in, in your basement? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I love that you asked that because it was never like this idea that something was missing. I, if I reflect on it, it was that I lived in New York City. I had a lot of pain that was going on in my life, in my heart that had I now realized was super old. And I didn't want to go and work on my physical body and then have to meditate and then find community and then it, figure out a way to, to kind of get the energy out of my body that was making me feel unwell, which, you know, to nod back to the original, the previous question, what we're really doing in the classes, we're, we're cleaning out your body, right? This it's holding things. And if you're not flushing and purifying and irrigating, things become dormant. And then you start to have these schisms about, why do I feel this way? And you can't even find it because there's a next thing on top of the next thing on top of the next thing. So that's why I like the maintenance of the class and the daily flushing of the physical body. So for me, that's what was missing. It was very, it felt very linear. Like you go to yoga, you go to meditation, you go to cardio, or you go to a class where somebody's just chirping at you and telling you like, and four and three and lift and do and do. And the whole time your mind is just like, Oh, you know? So and then the music element, I've always been, I think <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm probably a DJ, at, you know, understanding how to place one song next to the other, next to the other to bring in the proper musician who's 
you're bringing them into the room that their, their work of their soul is coming through them. And if you don't want to hang out with them or listen to their words or understand what they're expressing, don't bring them into the room. So that was missing too. It felt like everything was just this kind of like either techno or like this fast. And the idea of creating movements that are expansive and loud and expressing while you're shaping your ass, while you're, you know, getting your heart strong, while you're moving and synthesizing the room with other people and that collective energy, and then being able to express through sound. That was the new thing. I mean, now you, you, there's a lot of places where I hear are using sound, which is a beautiful thing. You know, I love being able to go to another class and they're using sound. People say to me like, doesn't that frustrate you that people are now like doing all this sound? And like, not at all, you know? And by sound, you kind of mean almost like borderline screaming, really yeah, flushing really out expression. Sc- yeah. We're, the sound, I actually, that's what always hits me in this world when people say like, yeah, you go and you do six minutes burpees and you scream. Like, that's actually not what we're doing. Yeah, we're doing a lot of burpees, but the intention of the burpee is to get the voice in your head going so you can take a peek at how long that voice has been going on and then get into your gut right? Into like the the root of your body and start to move from a more grounded place. Screaming to me has the energy of like something seriously wrong Mm -hmm. and you're leaving your body and you're in panic. So what we're doing is we're getting people like just this morning, we'll, we'll move in a way where you get the room moving and then you get quiet for a bit, which I find is an advanced teaching style, the ability to be quiet and not just, you know, keep bantering people with what to think about. And then after you get quiet for a while, you can offer up the student to bring something up that's going outside of the room, get quiet again, ask them where they feel it in their physical body, let them spend some time there, and then decide if they want to continue to hold that in their physical body or express it. Then from there, you identify what sound that feeling would make and then we start to make sound. So it's a it's a more guttural, connected. It's not like, ah, you know, it's, mm-hmm. or people are celebrating or people are laughing and glowing, whatever it is. And then we invite students to not get in your neighbor's business. Don't look around the room. Hold the anchor of your own body while the person next to you is having a full breakthrough or laying down and crying or standing there and breathing, like collectively holding the space for each person to have their own experience without having a judgmental feedback from the room. Um, I'd say, yeah, it sounds like it even goes the other, instead of feeling more more vulnerable because of the people in the room, when people are really, really open to the experience, which is is kind of, it's almost self-selecting for people that go to the class, then it's, it's almost contagious, that vulnerability is contagious or begets more vulnerability around the room and frees you up. It's, you know, just me yelling and, and expressing a loud, vivacious sound when I'm alone. It actually doesn't feel as harmonious or even biological than to do it with, I mean, it's like wolves howling together. There is a very, very, um, strong biological reason of why animals make these loud sounds together and and reinforce each other and it's it is it's it seems, yeah, yeah. it seems yeah. it seems like it's really actually a contagion of a vulnerability to have others around the room maybe yeah. push push the boundaries even further than you would yeah and the thing is is that 
this is where the nuance kind of in the design of the teaching comes into place where the person that's leading the class is really taught in a way to guide the student into gaining trust with themselves that they don't have to do any of it. And once you give permission to the person through repetition, through building the fire first, through just physically creating movements that get all of the stuff going, then you start to ideate and you start to explore different things that are going on outside the room. Then do you start to invite sound? Then do the mirrors fog up? Then does the loud, you know, the, and then the wolves howl together, you know? So it's not like come in and like, if you're not doing it, you're not part of the pact. It's like, you absolutely don't have to do it. And when you give somebody the space to not do it, that is when the magic oftentimes happens because nobody wants to be in a place where they're told they have to figure something out or they must connect a dot, right? Mm-hmm. Gaining trust with the psyche, that's first and foremost. And psyche, when we mean psyche, we mean skin of the soul, right? The, the part of your physical essence that is collecting all of your experiences from you know womb on. And if there's parts that have gone on in your life that you don't want to express or you're, you don't feel embodied enough to bring them up, don't do it. But there is something that goes on that's very visceral and very somatic and cellular of being in a room when people are just being given the permission to express something without having to be told that they're doing it right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's powerful to... to not just think about, but also to contrast and how rare that is in life. Yeah. Well, I think that's a lot of what was going on behind the scenes for me. And there's still yeah, well, a massive... I was going to say, walk, walk us walk us through where... Well, continue with that thought, but I do yeah. want you to walk us through where you were eight years ago. Yeah. I, this is, you know, this is always where it becomes tricky for me. And I've never told the story. I've never really told the truth around it because there's a couple parts to it. I've always wanted the work of the class to be about the work of the class, not about my story. And if I talk about my story, then people start to identify, you know, or not identify, that's the wrong word, or go down the path of like, oh, what was that like? And it brings them into my experience. And I've always wanted the method to be about the method. And from day one, people told me, absolutely not. This is nothing that can be scaled or taught to other people. It's just you. And I knew in my gut and in my heart that it was. It's obviously been a very long road to find the humans that can embody the work and express it in a way that is safe and that is intelligent. And that is because they've done their own work. But that aside, you know, what was going on with me is that I grew up in a really very difficult home, had parents that were divorced and it was a really gnarly divorce. And my dad, uh, is just, you know, he, in my opinion, has had the same thing done to him that was done to us. Uh, which is the same thing that happened with my mom and neither of them had the capacity or the ability. I don't know if it's generational or not to do the work on it. Um, so it was just bled down through the bloodlines and that was filled with, you know, all different forms of abuse and abandonment, which I'm still working on current day. I still have a lot of stuff around the kind of masculine energy. And when a male, you know, physically, leaves or not what it triggers in me and what it brings up in me. Um, I have now been able to identify as being a lot of what went on early on that essentially I blacked out. And in that space, I learned about the power of community 
and about a sacred space that you can hold to allow people to share. And I mean, it makes me feel emotional talking about it, what I've learned in, in that ability to sit in circle with people. And there was just a lot of pain and suffering and it started early on. So of course, you know, it, it bled through into my relationships later in my life and that I would identify with people that would use me to blame because that's what I knew. And, you know, uh, trauma seeks trauma in other people and, you know, you trigger each other's thing. Um, so I created the class really, if I was, if I reflect on it, to be able to express what was going on without telling anyone, to be able to bring people together, to be able to move in a way that felt good for my body and to be able to play some really good music. And in that, in that space, I learned about the power of one more beat, the power of one more burpee, the power of one more breath, the power of one more day, you know, and after I would teach and I would move that way, I felt like I was armed with the ability to stay embodied and keep moving forward while staying present. And it's, it's, it's just fascinates me every day when I go into the office or into the studio. And there are so many people that are like-minded in the idea that we are holding one another's hand and we are in this together and it is collective. And it is not about telling somebody what they should or should not do. It's, I'm here to listen. I've been there too. Let me share. And then sure enough, it comes back around and then they do it for you when you need it. And the power of that cyclical magic that goes on and holding space for one another. Um, So it was really built out of a lot of self-loathing, you know, I, I hated myself and I realized that was a lot of unexpressed pain. I was exhausted by hating myself and I was exhausted with the internal dialogue of it. And, and when, you, when you say that, hating yourself, walk me through what you mean uh, specifically or an example that... I mean, that, it's just, it's the, um, <laughs> I'll just say it. It's the like, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm stupid. Everything is my fault. What have I done? You know, what have I done? How did I do this? Why did I do this? All the things that weren't even my fault, but I identified them as being that. And I've later realized when I start to feel that way physically, I'll put my hands on my body and I'll be like, T, you are not fat. You are in pain. Let's get to it. You know, and I started talking to myself that way because what was happening is that the internal and the external world had a huge schism in it. And I hated having to hear myself complain about my body to people or complain about myself to people. I'm like, people must be exhausted by this, but I didn't know where to put it. I didn't know what it was. And I just started seeking. I started trying to connect the dots. And in doing so, I created this incredible container to help heal myself. I've made such strides in my own internal dialogue around understanding really my spirit, which I can notice now because I'll look at my kids who are eight and 10 and I'll look at Finley, who's my eight-year-old, who reminds me so much of myself and say, wow, okay, if that was going on to her, I can now look at myself at that age and have some more compassion to how it was for me then. So becoming a mom was a huge stepping stone for me to be able to take a peek at it because I used to just cut it off. I was like, that is so trite. Oh yeah, mom and dad. Oh, mom and dad. Like, get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm definitely that kind of like mentality or I had that mentality of like, just stop. 
just get over this, like move forward, stop doing it. And it wasn't unhooking. It wasn't shifting, but you know, I'm, I'm part German. I got that side of me. That's like, let's go, let's go. I have a strong constitution. I know how to push through things. I, I know how to get by on little sleep. And like, it just stopped working. You know, you come to a point where all of the thing is crumbling and the external optics of like, I worked at Ralph Lauren. I'm like, you know, a, a size, whatever, like it's, it's da, 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 da. Like none of that matters. The optics don't matter. If the internal world is so unhealthy and unwell. And I, I spent a lot of time down in Peru too, in my early twenties, which is 20 years ago. And I used to drink a lot of plant medicine back in the day before it was a thing. And, you know, which, I would come back and they would be like, which plant medicine what are you talking about? And I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody <laughs> about that because my heart is so blown open and everybody's just telling me that I'm crazy. So I've just understood how to close the gate of speech and not tell people. But that is also something that really helped me learn how to hold space in a room. The practices that I, that I learned in there and sitting in circle with people while you would experience people healing while going through the fire. Uh, what do you mean specifically about, I hear my friend Lenny in the back of my head saying, man, when creators are talking, ask them for specifics. So what specifically around, well, what was the plant medicine and that experience in Peru? But then also, I'm really interested to hear, what are the specifics that you implement in holding a room? When you say holding a room, kind of what goes through your mind of, of you now versus what you might have thought of, quote unquote, holding a room yeah. At 18, 20. Yeah. Uh, I, well, back in my 20s, I used, it used to be ayahuasca that I would drink, which, you know, people go to like Brooklyn and drink now. And I'm always laughing. Like, I would never, not that it's good or bad, but personally drink that type of medicine in New York City just because <laughs> there's so much energy here. Like, I'd have right. to go to the land or go upstate. Um, but I, that, you know, was probably drank that 15 times and then uh. stopped, you know, 12 years ago because it did its thing it needed to on me. And then the idea of holding space, it's actually funny asking that there's two rules in the class, which are really two things that I used to hear in ceremony, which was don't speak to your neighbor and don't touch them. And that's it, you know, and that's really what we're doing, setting the tone of the room. We're not looking when somebody's in a space, if somebody is in euphoria and they're laughing to like nudge them and be like, right. Or if somebody's on their ground or on their knees and they're grieving well to go over and be like, it's going to be okay. You just hold the space for them to process. And that's what it looks like. And when I first started teaching, if I reflect on it, a lot of what I was doing in that room was holding the room. And then after I would break, because it wasn't that I was holding a boundary for myself. I was essentially like, I'm holding it for you. Give it to me. I can hold it. And then I would leave and I couldn't figure out why I would cry all day. You know, I mean, there were a couple reasons I would identify with that were going on that were like practical reality. But I realized that it was like, I was like, come on people. I got you kind of thing. Not in those words. And now the idea of what's implemented so much in classes after big expansive movements, we ask all participants to place their hands on their body, close their eyes, wiggle their toes and come back into their body. So what we're doing in that work is that we're holding people accountable to hold their space in their own body. I'm, I'm not asking you to give it to me. I'm saying it's in here. And we're also making sure that people stay embodied. So if something's coming up, 
that they don't want to experience, that they know how to come back and restabilize and regulate themselves into their presence, which to me is the best medicine around. So yeah, it's definitely changed. And the beautiful thing about our training and the design of it is that as I go out to the world and do my own work, which I still do, I just came uh, yesterday, you know, I, I still do trauma work every week with this woman, Diana Fosha, who I got from this woman, Esther Perel, Esther is actually her name, who I worked with for a bunch of, um, probably about a year and a half, who identified a bunch of trauma, who put me into trauma work. Who, so I'm always out there in the work myself so I can do the work on myself and then explore it. And I never teach it or bring it through until I have come to a place of integration of it within myself. So the more work I do on myself, the more I'm able to imprint it in the training and then teach the teachers. And then it becomes this collective healing. Well, I want to talk about that, that work that you're, that you continue to do, but I want to touch on a phrase that you used grieving well and in not helping someone when they're grieving well. It's, it reminds me of the, a policy that elderly homes have of don't do for, for someone else that which they can do themselves, that it's actually quite disempowering mm-hmm. um, to take that away from them. And it helps in the short term, but not in the long term. It seems like that is the application of something similar of don't go up to them and say, I'm, I'm with you. Let them grieve well. Don't touch them. Don't, don't talk to them as they're grieving well. I almost... I mean, I it almost just that phrase almost brought me to uh, a tear or two thinking of grieving well, talking about just two words that rarely go together. In your own life, what are, what's an example of when you haven't grieved well and where you've grieved unwell and and then an experience where you've grieved well and yeah. in a much more maybe uh, mature fashion? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that just happened in January that I haven't spoke about. I mean, my inner circle knows about it, but I haven't grieved well when I go to the bar, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really what, and I mean, go to the bar, like instead of sitting with the feeling, we'll go out with friends and have a couple cocktails because the idea of, you know, your liver, which is processing anger and grief essentially, which is living under anger you go and you drink and then you heat your liver and then your body doesn't have to feel the emotions that are in it. So it makes sense when you're in the throes of something that people want to drink because it makes, it numbs you out. But then the next day, all of the heat in the body creates more anger, which oftentimes leads to the same cycle. And I've really learned through the past couple of years about my own process of the things that I use to self-medicate and put some scaffolding around that and know when I'm in something that I'm actively looking for something and tracking it and trying to identify it and feel what else is getting activated and staying with it. And essentially like closing the floodgates in a way of like, that's when I do active aloneness. That's when I'm trying to find something that's really old that's coming up so I can get to the note of it and and go into it and heal. And I did dry January and I don't drink that much anymore, but, um, I just did dry January to say like, let's just do dry January. But I was in an experience uh, recently and I I've been trying to track a lot of what's been going on with some things that I blocked out a lot in my early childhood, huge windows of blocking these things out. And I've been working on it a lot with Diana and I started 
feeling a lot of like really uncomfortable feelings in January. And then I woke up on a Friday morning and I was just enraged and I've not felt this level of rage and it, I couldn't track it to anything. I couldn't figure out what it was from. I had a great week. Everything at work is going well. Everything at home is going well. I felt super stable, but I was filled with rage. And I called my friend, Jamie Barrett, who's like one of my sacred sisters. And I said, I'm filled with so much rage right now. Can you just listen? And she was like, I'm here, girl. And I just started yelling in the phone, you know, and it just started coming up. And she was like, yep, yep. And I, and then I just started crying and then I was yelling and then I'm like, I put the phone down and I put my face in the pillow and I just started screaming and then more shit, this thing and this, and it just started coming. And like, I don't know what was up, but it was coming. And then I was supposed to go have lunch with some girlfriends and I got to lunch and I, it was still there. And everybody found it kind of funny because I was aware of the fact I was in process and I wasn't lashing out at people. And then I had just said, I was supposed to go out with a friend that night. And I'd said, I need some space right now. And she was like, yeah, no, we had plans all week. So we're going to do this. And I ended up saying yes. And it was a total boundary thing. And then we, you know, I ended up going out and I was filled with it. And I ended up leaving and going home that night and sitting down on the couch. And I just started processing more and processing more. And then it broke into tears. And I sat on my couch for like two and a half hours by myself. And I grieved well. And I got to this node of this thing that had so much to do with me in like the ages of the like Finley and Letty, my children's years. And it felt like, I felt like I was on like an altered state. Like I'd taken something because I was in such like somatic processing and it lasted for about five days. And I just set a boundary around me where I actually wrote it out. These are the things I'm going to talk about. These are the people that I'll talk to. These are my movement practices. And I remember specifically on a Wednesday, a girlfriend of mine had said to me, come on in. I want to like give you a facial. And she had this lymphatic drainage blanket that she put me in. Teresa Tarmi is her name. And she just laid down and she rubbed my face. And I imagined this blanket that was squeezing and releasing. And I left and I felt like I had just taken like a 50 pound shit and everything had everything released. Like I had so much more compassion for myself. I felt like I could see the world through like a different kind of like pixelation. And when people come into my space and use words around me, I feel them faster and I pull my own emergency brake quicker so for me, that's processing and grieving well. And that was some grief that needed to come through because that was grieving a part of me that never had a father, you know, and grieving the fact I didn't have a father, not trying to heal a relationship with a father. Yeah, you mentioned Finley's age, eight, you know, experience of, of you. It wasn't dealing with something six months ago. The node was really, wasn't even 10 years ago. It was... It was so much younger than that. And, and we, we all just feel like life starts at 18. Tell me about yourself. Well, I went to this college and then I started It's like, man, there's, that's maybe the last 2%. So much. I think Freud thought that the psyche was set by age six. 
I, I totally see it with our daughter at two. It's just a totally different perspective of, whoa, she's picking up on these messages mm. that are repeating these patterns and she's forming these pathways for yeah. good or, or, or bad. What were, so you mentioned lack of a, a father. What at the uh, potential pursuit of too much personal information, what was that node? Um, a little, a little bit more of, of what you're dealing with from eight years old, nine years old. Yeah. I mean, I feel incredibly exposed right now. So here we are, but that's <laughs> fine. Thank you for letting me share. This is like, below oh the God, line. This is what the, this is what the podcast is, is all, is I mean, all about. I hope that it helps someone, you know, that's really why I share anything. I really hope that it helps somebody know that when they're in process, about something, you don't have to run away from the feeling, like stay with yourself, find your people that can hold it. Ask them what, you know, ask them to listen, tell them if you want feedback, tell them if you want touch, get in the bath, use water, you know, like, so anyway, I I just hope that that helps someone. Um, It's certainly that, like we said, vulnerability begets vulnerability. And I think it's so powerful for one friend in a group of five to do this, to be this, this open, it, it's contagious. And, and then the second and third, I mean, the universal experiences, like yeah. we said, just before we start, it's, it's quite universal. So I think, yeah. it, I think this, this will help, help people um, that are listening. Thank you. That's beautiful to consider. And my, my hope as well. So my parents got divorced and It was just one of those things where like, I asked my sister the other day, do you remember when mom and dad told us about the divorce? And she said, yeah, don't you remember? We were in the bedroom and mom was hysterically crying. And then she said, wait, maybe you were under her arm and she was crying and then you left. I don't really remember. And I said, no, I don't remember that at all. And she said, do you remember us packing boxes and the electricity in the house had been turned off because our house got taken by the bank and mom was crying. And I was like, no. And I said, how did we get to Connecticut? Because we moved in with my aunt and uncle. And she said, I think we drove mom's car. And I'm like, I don't remember this. I don't remember any of it. And now I was in third grade, which is in between my two children. I was second grade and a fourth grader. So I should remember part of that. And I don't. So that says something. Um, And then I do remember my dad coming back at one point and just saying to me, you know, basically in summary, your mom is the devil and she's a horrible human being. And then I would go back to my mom and my mom would be screaming at me and telling me I was horrible and, you know, doing all of the physical things that, that happen when somebody's in a state of trauma and rage themselves and not understanding that you're forming a child's psyche and the way they see and relate with humans in the world. And that's why I really have a lot of compassion for my mom. She's a beautiful human that had a really crazy psychic ability. And I think she kind of went a little bit crazy with it. And she never had a channel to express it or to move through it or understand how to create community or understand her internal world becoming her external world through her words. So she was creating good old Alan Watts, her universe, by complaining and telling everybody that everything was their fault and becoming the victim. Now, the reason why I feel this is very exposing is because, and the reason why I don't tell the story a lot is because I don't ever want to make somebody else, mother or father, feel like they've done something wrong. I don't view them as them having done something that they were aware that they did. I see the situation as what it is, which is that this is what was done to them, how they learned how to cope, and they did the best they can. 
but the intention is different than the impact. That's what I've started to realize. So the impact it had on me was now I'm tossed back around from home to home. Dad lived three and a half hours away, would vanish for who knows how many months, had a warrant out for his arrest. We would go and stay with my dad in the summer. We would sit at the top of the hill when we were driving to his house to have to perch on the top to see if the cops were there to arrest him, to be able to get into the house, you know, all that stuff. And then I loved my dad. I, my dad would play with me. He would cook me food. He would, you know, do arts and crafts with me. He wouldn't yell at me, you know? So I was like, my dad is like everything. And then I would go back to my mom and my mom was a single mom that was trying to get by, no child support, all this kind of nightmarish stuff that happens when deadbeat dad that runs away. And she was doing the best she could. And it was just complete chaos every day. And, you know, then I, my dad would talk to me about my mom and my mom would talk to me about my dad. And I've learned that that's called emotional incest. When one parent is telling you the other parent and now talk about creating a schism of external internal worlds. Like I love my dad. I missed my dad. And then my dad would vanish for months at a time. And I would think that it was something I did. And then I wouldn't have my mom tell me your father is just a human that has a capacity and a limit and it has nothing to do with you. He's just a human that's unable to show up right now, but he loves you. You know, she would say things along the lines of he's a horrible person. And then I'd be like, but I miss him. So something must be wrong with me. Why do I feel this way? You know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And then, you know, I moved out when I was 18 and started working at the Ralph Lauren store out in East Hampton when I was, you know, about 20 and then worked my way up through the corporate ladder there, went from store to store and then moved to the city with a corporate job and just started building my own life um, on my own. But those stories were there were a part of me and I went into massive amounts of complete blackout periods. So through the trauma work that I do now, we've been tracking a lot of where some of the current day experiences are coming from. I mean, I remember something happened to me like two weeks ago that was all around, I was supposed to have a meeting with someone. They uh, canceled, but I didn't know they had. And I, you know, it was a long, it's a long winded story, which we don't need to get into, but I immediately texted Diana and I was like, I'm in such a triggered state right now. And she said, close your eyes. Let's track it back. Let's find the last time you felt this feeling. And I went back and back and back. And I found the memory of Easter Sunday sitting on the front step until the lights went out. And I was waiting for my dad to come. And my mom kept saying, he's, you know, see, this is what he does. See, this is what he does. And I just sat out there. And I remember being in complete heartache around the fact that I thought I did something wrong and he didn't want to see me. And it had all to do with me when it could just be a calendar, you know, or Mm -hmm. but like that, the fact that nobody was there to identify, like now it's like, you know, you can shoot an email to somebody and say like, Oh, sorry. And I'm like, great. And I can identify, you know, I can intellectualize it. I'm not walking around in a triggered state Mm -hmm. in my life all the time, but I use the feeling that I have to start to track it and then get to the note of remembering things. And that's really how I use these things that are getting activated now. That's, it's hard. It sounds like hard work, but is it hard in the moment? It's, you know, it's interesting because I'm hearing myself speak and I'm, I've become so aware of the things and how they feel in my physical body 
that I don't go down the rabbit hole anymore. It's, ah, here it is. All right, let's take a peek at it. So I'm not throttled by it. I just use it. Right. So I don't think I'm ever going to have, you know, be healed from these experiences and I'm not seeking that. They just have a different space in my psyche and I have a different relationship with them now. Mm-hmm. And I've used them, you know, and I've, I've, I've used them to work on myself, which has created this beautiful, mind-blowing, strong, powerful, sensitive, vulnerable collective community. And hey, if that's what all that stuff has done, like, let's do it again, you know? Right, right. Well, that it, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Taryn. That's um, that is, I, like I said, it's vulnerability begets vulnerability. So I, it's a net positive in, in the world, and I know it's a net positive for so many creators listening that they know their their articulations of their story might start when they're twenty two or twenty five or what they started doing five years ago, and it's like this is who I am. This is where I work, and yet deep down they know it's that is so far from who they are, what they are, where they are. And it's so much more to do with where they were when they were five, eight, 14. So thank yeah. you for, for sharing that. A question that I, that I love asking guests is tell me three stories that have helped shape who you've become. And so if you've touched on these, uh, you know, one or two of them, great. But I would love to know three stories in your life that have helped shape who you've become as a person today. Yeah. Um, I have touched on a couple of them, I, I, I would say for sure. But the most obvious, I think, is becoming a mother. I remember like it was yesterday, the minute I pulled my first daughter out. And like, this is not like over-exaggerating it. It was as if like a waterfall of I don't know what on a cellular level came over my body and reset the way that I was in a place of using my own internal where it, it no longer became about me. It was not as, like uh, no more. I'm going to use this thing to self lacerate. I'm going to use this, this um, person's opinion to figure out how I'm wrong. You know, it, it became about something so much bigger than me that came through me literally <laughs> <laughs> from another part of a human that I loved with all my heart. And it just, I don't know how to explain it. It was like, it just reset everything, like a, a completely new lighthouse or compass in my life on such a real level. And maybe it's just called unconditional love. Maybe it's called an awakening. I don't know, but it was definitely child number one. And then, you know, child number two is like, pulled her out and was like, Finn's here. Let's like throw her on the shoulder. And you know, let's get going. But the first was a very powerful experience. It was a love like I never, ever, 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 ever knew you could experience. Um, and it's, it stays true. You know, it's one of the most difficult things in your life and it's one of the most fulfilling at the same time, if you allow it to be, you know, so definitely giving birth, the actual experience right. of giving birth, you know, it's the same thing in class, like, which is funny because I gave, I had two unmedicated births, which was never like, I'm going to do it this way. Cause I'm going to be like, whatever. I just wanted to be able to move my body. And that was before I taught the class. So it's interesting that like the way I teach the class is the way I gave birth too. It's like, it's one more breath. And right when you can't think you can do any more, just do one more and then just do one more. And when your head gets in front of you of like, how long is this going to last? 
come back to just one more. So the the experience of actually giving birth imprinted a lot of my life's work. Do you um, mind? Do you mind? Do you mind just uh, building that out a little bit more of what what made you feel gave you the the thought? Okay, I want to move, and it, like what was the the thought process there of I want to be unmedicated because I want to move? It, this is a world I know nothing about of the differences yeah. between the two, but that sounds pretty I interesting. Just always felt it was really fascinating that you get numbed in your lower body and you have to lay on your back. And it just didn't sound like it's something that I was interested in experiencing. Now I know pain is pain, but it's temporary. And I know that the feelings that I've always, always had from an early age, I would feel things in my physical body. And the idea of taking out my ability to move just didn't sound like something I wanted to experience. Um, maybe because that's the way I was always able to process even early on. Like I would play sports and when I was playing sports, I found that that's when I felt okay. So I just didn't want to take my movement out. And the more and more I started studying what goes on when a woman is giving birth and the way that her pelvis opens to the top as the head descends and the way that the rocking action, which is a natural movement that the women that I did, right. Which just came through that the rocking and the kind of moaning and the, and the movements of the body are what allow the head to descend into the pelvis, which allow, you know, and even the forward motion, which allows the, the weight of the back and the, and the head to drop forward. And then the position of the hard spot on the head pushes on your cervix, which creates dilation, which creates all the ability for you to give a vaginal birth. And, you know, I just, it just started to make sense. And I wanted to be able to do it that way. And whether I could or couldn't was up to higher power, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about the medical industry. If you need it, it's there. And if you aren't able to push a baby out and something goes south that you can have a C-section, but, you know, I wanted to give it a shot. Um, and luckily I had two beautiful births. Um, you know, I didn't have IVs or anything in me and I could feel what was going on. So you don't kind of destroy everything on the way out <laughs> for too much information there. But, um, and I felt great after, you know, I felt, I felt great. I got up, I, I had my second at the birth center at St. Luke's and I left like 12 hours later and was, you know, had her in a little sling in a juice bar and people were like, whose baby is that? And, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for that experience. I know that sounds idyllic, but, um, I'm, I'm grateful for it. That's amazing. Okay. And story number two. Story number two. um, Really, when I met Mama Kia, who is who I met in uh, Peru, my first trip down there in my 20s, she really changed the shape of my life. Uh, And I think when I when I look back on why, it's that she was really the first pass of a mother to me and what it felt like. And I remember thinking, oh, she just loves everybody like this. And even if she did or didn't, she still loved me like that. And I remember having a conversation with her when I was sitting on these pillows. And who, who is um, Mama Kia? Mama Kia was an American woman who I met in Peru going down on a yoga retreat who uh, had created a children's home down there. And she adopted 25 orphaned children and created a home down there called Casa de Milagros. And she really just believed in the power of love. And if you Google her, Mama Kia, you'll find a YouTube video on her that explains her. She passed away when she was 60 of um, cancer, which the last time I saw her, 
she had said that she was going to die because she had heartache from one of her children dying. That 12 year old had died and she said she couldn't tolerate it anymore. And sure enough, six months later, she um, got a tumor and died. Mm -hmm. When she died, I started teaching the class. And for the first almost two years, we sent the funds to her children, um, which is, you know, I had a lot of grief around that. That was my way to work to heal the grief. Um, And I remember when we stopped sending the money, which we still send money every month from the community classes down there. But I remember when I stopped because things had gone a little bit south down there with the way that system and the the kind of PayPal and all of that was being run at the time. Um, I was really upset about it. And I felt like I can't continue this work if I charge for it. And I was kind of crying and was just talking to her and she'd come through and said, Oh honey, look at what you're doing. And I was like, what? And I, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I think it's that I was working to help other people. Um, so I was unaware of that because I was in my own personal hell. But now it makes more sense. Um, with all humility, I say that. So when I met her, I just remember sitting down at the table and she looked at me and I was like, Mama Kia, like, I just hate myself. I hate myself. And she looked at me with her crazy green eyes like saw straight through me and said in a way that I'd never felt anybody say before, honey, you have to understand how beautiful you are in the most real way. And she wasn't talking about my looks, you know, and it just imprinted something in me that understood soul and like seeing through people and what, who they are. And, um, it's just, you know, she, she really, and then I drank, I did my first uh, ceremony with her. I later in that ceremony, I saw this hill that kept coming through, which I later realized was one of the main issues um, that was going to end up throttling a big part of my life, um, which is why I said now and on. So that was fascinating too. So there's like stories and the stories and the stories and the stories, but meeting mom Always, was, yeah. was incredibly powerful for me. And it's almost like I, I always feel resistance around saying it because I never want to be like, oh, the class was created because of this incredible healer. But the truth is the truth. And I need to watch my own kind of moment around not being able to just share the truth because I'm concerned about what other people are going to think or say, because that's part of my issue. It still lives rampant in me that I've created a movement with the the idea to help myself and others heal by becoming vulnerable in a world that is not kind and wants to then come back and hate. And when you're exposed like that, it's really painful. So that's half the reason why I don't want to share things sometimes, you know, I just, I don't, I'd rather kind of hibernate. So, um, have you got, have you gotten hate or criticism along the way in the last Yeah. You know, I had this, this total, just like girl that I used to teach yoga with like take a thing that I posted on Instagram once and like Instagram it and was like making fun of me as, as being like, Oh, that I'm rich. So because I'm rich, I have no idea about spirituality. And like, it was so upsetting to me because the optics are, yeah, I live in Tribeca. I married a guy that was in finance and go ahead and do the math. Like, you know, great. Thanks. No one has any idea of the truth behind the scenes because I've never shared it. And whether or not you're able to pay your bills or not doesn't take away from the validity and the 
the impact of life experiences. And I've always been really scared of being taken down or put in this bucket of like things just being just about like having money because that's not the truth. You know, it's not. And, you know, I've had some experiences when I, you know, years ago were probably created the optics of having a lot financially, but that's actually not the truth. Like you can have things and still be broke, you know, and in more ways than just financial. So it's that kind of thing. You know, how dare I have a voice in this world if I married a guy in finance, you know? So that just is what it is. It's, you know, I can go on that for years and clearly I'm having some, there's some parts of that story that I'm not comfortable sharing and where I'm at in in my relationship. Um, so we'll just keep that there for now. But um, it sounds like it's relevant for that second story of Mama Kia saying, you have to understand how incredibly beautiful you are. Because it yeah. it doesn't sound, at least in the tone that you use, it doesn't sound like it's a, it's a compliment. It's not like, hey, let me try to shape how you feel about yourself with my view. It's more like if you don't understand this, so much damage can be done around you. That is it. You just nailed it. I mean, it just gave me goosebumps. Like that idea, you know, of that. It that's it. And, you know, it, I could talk about that for years. Like, you know, sometimes you're in, in, in people's field or some people impact you in a way that they have no idea they impacted you. And that can be negatively or positively. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those experiences where the words were there, but it had nothing to do with the words. It was so like, just, it reorganized something in me. That's like, wait a second. You know, I, I, I this is, this is gonna, I, I have to let this be the kind of initiation of a new thought process about the human soul and spirit that has chosen this physical body to take a ride out in this lifetime and mm-hmm. my soul and whatever power it is that one believes in that decides what soul lives where didn't give me the shit end of the stick in that bucket. And they probably didn't do it. So it makes me able to bring the work of my soul out to the world in an easier way. It gave me less uphill kind of, you know, stuff to climb. And if I don't, understand that kind of duality of these things, then I'm just going to be at odds with myself forever. And we're not going to get shit done. Mm -hmm. You know, ignoring the truth type of distraction. Yeah. When the truth is, is uh, so much of the time, a beautiful truth that uh, we casually ignore. I know with, with my last company, we built it up over five years, got really far and got to, Within three years, a $400 million valuation and 18 months later, we're, it was a fire sale. And it was just, I mean, I had been making plans. Where I was like, all right, my wife and I, we're going to move to South Africa. I'm going to be broke, uh, jobless, and I'm just going to write where can I go really cheaply to uh, to make what the savings that we do have last as long as possible. And, and it was uh, a very, very low time in life. And, and one... One mentor, advisor, investor, Mike Maples, who I've had on the podcast, sent me a, a one-line email. It, it didn't reference any of the the bad press. It didn't reference any of the sentiment at all. It was, 
there's greatness inside of you. Woo, getting emotional just, just thinking about that. But to your point of people often don't know how much they can impact you. A mirror, a, you know, a mirror has no personification. But that mirror, what you see back, can impact us so much, positively or, or negatively. Your vulnerabilities has really opened up my my vulnerability uh, on this, but it's um, that's what's so beautiful about the human mirror, and and people that see the greatness in, inside of us and and why you want them close. I probably only interacted with with Mike a couple times a year, but it was that was a truth that was very very hard for me to see, and his one line, six word, seven word email was, it was so important for, for me to see. And I think about that all the time. And he probably, it was one of 127 emails he sent on a Tuesday in, in February, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's what the human human mirror or or people it sounds like with Mama Kia can reflect that um, that we we need around us. Okay, enough about me. All right, uh, story number three. But thank you so much for sharing. And I, I um, yeah, thank you. I think it's that's a powerful one with Mama Kia telling you not in a yeah. compliment way, but in something you needed you yeah. needed to understand. I talked about my family's divorce, you know, but, um, I think that that was obviously a huge thing for me and how to not do that (laughs) that way. And, uh, you know, how to be aware. I mean, it just goes, there's so many things coming through right now. It just goes, it goes back to the idea that, you know, whether or not there's something inside you that is getting activated by somebody else, which is what obviously happened with this girl that decided to attack me. Um, several times actually. And, um, it's that your words matter, you know? So what was going on through the divorce, my parents would talk about one another to me, to use me as the disposal, not understanding that their words were shaping my life. Right. And this is what I was talking about with a friend recently is that if you want to shape somebody's life and destroy them, you can do that. And then to understand like the very baseline essence of karma. And that's not like wag your finger. If you don't pick up the trash, you lay on the street and you drop something and you know, you don't do good when nobody's looking, you're going to get hit by the karma stick. It's that every action has a reaction. That's it. So the words that you put out there will create a reaction, right? And whether or not that's that comes back to you or it reacts in them. You're walking around and you're dropping this energy all the time and you're creating reactions, whether or not it becomes cyclical or internal or they repress it or express it. Like just be aware of the life you are creating. And I realized that through that period of time of my parents' divorce, that their words became my truth until I realized they were not my truth. Mm-hmm. So that's a boundary that I have to work every day now that I identify if somebody says something to me, 
oh, that must be true. And I have to use emotional resources to stabilize myself to be like, but the truth is like, get back in here. Right. And like, let's take a peek at what your human heart is and your soul and your work and who you are and how you operate and your own knowing without anybody else needing to validate it. And, you know, I think that's really, that really shaped me, the divorce and the words. And then it's something that continues to make me have to take a peek at that to this day. And, uh, what is, what is a way that you emotionally stabilize yourself during one of those, those moments? And maybe it's not too complicated. I don't want to overcomplicate it. It's when I feel anything in my physical body, whether it's your stomach, it's your heart, it's that you're up in the, you know, the frontal lobe of your brain in a triggered state, whatever, like I just am so physical now. I notice if there's a response, if there's heat in my body and I take a minute and I put my hands on my body and I close my eyes and I breathe and I just take a minute and that's it. That's all I do. And thank God that's all I do. And then sometimes I need to do that again. And then sometimes I need to do that again before I actually put my words into action or expression. So I understand that whatever I'm about to put out there has a reaction. And if I want the reaction to be, let's unite, let's figure out a way to come together. Let me hold a space for you to feel like you don't have to become combative by taking a moment for myself to check in and notice what my words are going to create in your response. You know, sometimes you got to track it down the field a little bit, but it's much faster because you become your practice. And that's even what I was saying about earlier with like the idea of like, I'm not operating in the world where I'm like landmines and triggered states all the time. Like I, I just see these things quicker and I feel them. And you know, it's the practice of taking a minute when you feel it, placing your hands on your body. Why hands on the body? Because it's the idea of you are in your physical body and I can feel my own touch with my own body and I can feel my own body with my own touch. So that's your container. That's how to pull yourself out of leaving your body. So for me, it's physical embodiment. I am here. I am now, you know, my, my trauma woman says to me, Anything that's already, anything that you fear has already happened. And, you know, anything you fear has already happened. And I I bring that in because when our house got foreclosed on when I was in third grade, I told her a couple of weeks ago, I just have this overarching fear every day that like, I'm going to lose my apartment and I'm not going to have anywhere to live. I wake up in the middle of the night. It happened to me again two nights ago when I was up, when you asked me like why I was up. That's half the reason why I was up. I was in a state. And I wasn't taking care of myself and I was feeling exhausted. And then that's usually when I feel just kind of overwhelmed. And I have this feeling because it already happened. What a power. That's very powerful. Just yeah, kind of perspective of what you fear has already happened to you. Yeah. So I have that fear, which is like not practical reality right now. So I have to put my hands in my body. See, you can pay your own bills. You have an accountant. This is your apartment. You are renting it. You can you can stay here for as long. You know, I, I have to talk myself into that. And that's just because that's so big and old. And I've been working on that one for a bit. But, you know, that idea of hands on my body so I can stabilize myself in the present adult Taryn Toomey moment. Mm-hmm. I'm here. This is not five-year-old Titi when I couldn't, didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So that's where that, that comes in. 
Last question, um, and then I'll let you go. Thank you so much for the generosity and the in the time and in candor. What is something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about? That's just something that takes up mind mind space, but you professionally, personally, rarely ever get a chance to talk about it. And maybe maybe it's nothing if it, because your work requires to be requires you to be so open. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting because I think we just talked about it. It's that it's really difficult and equally fulfilling to be able to do the work that I'm doing, which is not, I never had a business idea. I was never like, I'm going to figure out a way to create a plan and like grow an idea. It came through like brick by brick day by day and has been built with that idea of not like, how am I going to scale this? How am I going to create a business plan? Like it was just brick by brick, you know? And I, I get a beautiful amount of people that come through, like either like, you know, they, they'll send you messages through social. Like, I just want to let you know, this has helped. This work has helped me heal, fill in the blank, help me change careers, help me get my body strong, like fill in the blank. I could have 150 of those. And to one sort of like nasty, horrible, mean remark, like all of that stuff just goes away. And if you're somebody in this world that likes to run in that bucket where you're going in and you're like bottom feeder energy and that low vibrational, let's say create an impact of negativity on this person because they're triggering something in me that's making me mad. Oftentimes it just swipes out the good. You know, it's like antibiotics, <laughs> mm -hmm. right. you know, but not. And like, so be mindful of that. And if that is your intention and that is what you want to do, know that you're probably doing it, but you're also really taking the kind of collective, you know, positivity out of it. And if that's what you want to do, that's absolutely what will come back. So just, you know, notice what's going on in you that's making you want to react that way. Track that behavior. And then go heal that part of you, you know? So that's really it. Like the kind of like hatred that goes on in this world, I hear it. It hurts, you know? It's noted. I hope to get enough armor around myself one day to not be affected by it the way that I do. But I'm human and I'm vulnerable and I'm sensitive. So I'm just going to have to keep doing those burpees, I guess. <laughs> and, and maybe tell those people that... They need to understand how beautiful they are internally, and maybe that uh, they're missing that that truth is is what's causing a lot of damage for them and those around them. Yeah, that is it. That's a beautiful way to end it. Thank you, Taryn. Where can people find more about you in the class? Yeah, we're just on theclass.com. Don't ask me how I got that URL. Yeah, that's a great one. It is a great one. Um, and we're also on social. You know, we're on Instagram, the class as well. I'm just Taryn Toomey and. Um, we're out there in the digital world now, so you can move with us. Please stream and gather your friends. That's the idea. Bring a bunch of people over and heat the room and throw those mats out. Connect to a loudspeaker and uh, let's do it together. So That's fantastic. And yeah. uh, you said on theclass.com, you can find an easy resource to start streaming it. Yeah. Just go under, um, there's uh, the schedule and then on the very bottom of it says digital and then click on that. There's 14 day free trial, so get it done. Awesome. Well, like I said, thank you so much for 
the generosity and time and candor today, Tanner. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review, good or bad. We love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.